understand we've all felt stuck at one point or another, even the most successful people among us, because it's a rite of passage, a trial, to see if you have what it takes to be independent. The test is to prove that you deserve your destiny. Each week our goal is to bring you an inspiring story of someone who moved beyond their stranded face and found greatness on the other side. Welcome to The Stranded Podcast, and this is your host, Jessica Hurley. Welcome to The Stranded Podcast, and buckle up because we're talking money again. This month, uh, I just organically ended up with several financial episodes because I feel like part of our stuck place, especially as millennials right now, is we're not saving, we don't have down payments for homes, and we're not paying off our student loan debt. And I'm not speaking for everybody, maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but uh, a, a stuck place to be before starting your own business or being able to invest in yourself is making sure that your life is financially sound. So I thought this was a great topic to cover this month. And so earlier this month, we talked about savings with the Penny Hoarders senior writer, Lisa Rowan. But we are following up this month with someone that I am like uber in love with. Um, I'm a part of her email list and her emails are amazing. But she is literally uh, considered across the internet a personal finance expert. And she has one of the top award-winning podcasts called Afford Anything. Her affordanything.com website is also award-winning, and she has been featured on some major, major publications, including Forbes, Fortune, Money.com, AOL Daily Finance, Bloomberg Business Magazine, and the Business Insider, and that is not all of them. This girl is everywhere. She's been speaking across the country. Um, And she's just someone that to me breaks down some of our most serious financial issues to things that we never thought we could do in a way that is relatable for all of us. So I am so excited to introduce to you my guest today answering all of my questions about investments, saving money, and buying her first rental property at 27 and now owning uh, over 30 rental properties and living completely financial freedom. So my guest today, let's welcome my guest today, the host of the Afford Anything podcast, Miss Paula Pant. Well, hello. Thank you so much for joining me, Miss Paula Pant. I am happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Y'all listen, you have no idea. I know I say I fangirl a lot, but this girl has changed my entire mentality this year. Everything about her podcast, Afford Anything, and her mindset has blown me away about the way I feel about money. And on a personal level, being a member of your email list, like you teach me something new every day. Thank you. Thank you. So thanks for taking the time out to talk to me and my guests. Um, I'm so excited. Speaking of, you have to tell us a little bit about you and how I read in one of your emails that going from Nepal to Ohio, you ended up changing your first name. I did. So the name um, that's on my birth certificate, the name that I was born with was Pragya. And I uh, immigrated to the U.S. with my parents when I was a baby. And when I was in 
yeah, daycare, preschool, somewhere around that age, it became clear that n- people were having a very hard time pronouncing Pragya. And so, and the tipping point was when I went to a friend's house and her grandfather said, he asked me what my name was and I said it and he asked me to repeat it and I said it back. And after a few iterations of that, he said, I am sick and tired of trying to learn your name. And like most young children, I was extremely literal. So when he said that he was sick and tired, I took that to mean that I had physically made him ill. And so I went home and I told my parents about it. I was like, I I made this guy sick today. Just, you know, just being me. (laughs) (laughs) And and so my dad suggested, he was like, well, you know, you're going to live in the U.S. Why don't we give you an American name? But then here was the catch. Here was a kicker. And I thought this was very clever. He was like, we're not going to get rid of Pragya. We're going to give you an additional name. So now Mm. you'll have two names. You'll have one name that you can use when you're talking to Americans. And you'll have another name that you can use when you're talking to Nepali people. And that way you can be both. The best of both worlds. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, so that's what we did. We uh, added an ad- an additional name onto my name. So he gave me the name Paula, and because I didn't have a middle name, we added Paula to the beginning of my name. So Pragya slid into the default middle name position. So now wow. my name's Paula Pragya. So my initials are now PPP. <laughs> <laughs> it could be worse. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. Do you ever? Um regret making that decision or are you completely you love Paula yeah yeah absolutely I love the name Paula so my parents this was cool so my parents let me choose what my name could be the only stipulation was that it had to begin with the letter P um because they liked alliteration so (laughs) (laughs) we sat uh like at night before bed we would read through this book of baby names and we we looked at all these different names like Penelope and Paige and we narrowed it down to either Paula or Pamela Mm. And so it it became a choice between those two. And there were actually various times throughout my childhood where I was like, darn, why didn't I choose Pamela? I know. (laughs) I know. I'm thinking about like Pamela Anderson. I'm like, I'm so shocked you didn't go with Pamela. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Paula Abdul was really big at the time, too. Yes, you're right. Paula Abdul versus Pamela Anderson. Which one would I be? Right. You know what? It's actually cool, though, because I remember what what young female child didn't want to change her name? Right. <laughs> right. And I got to actually do it. Yeah, you got the, you got the honor, girl. You got the best of both worlds. <laughs> we all wanted to be somebody we were at the time. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of mentality change, um, I preach this over and over again about how you've changed my mindset about money. But one of your uh, big quotes or mantras is you can afford anything but not everything. And I can't tell you how many times I tell myself that when my natural response is to go, I can't afford that. And yeah. I, I read how you started your blog because you had friends that were saying that over and over again about travel. Yes. So I was in college and right out of college, very, very passionate about travel. Uh, I When I was in college, I really wanted to study abroad. But study abroad programs were prohibitively expensive. I'm like 15 to $20,000 just for a single Ooh. semester, you know, and I was like, I'm not paying that. <laughs> and so I thought about it. And I realized I didn't actually want to study. I just wanted to go abroad. So I realized that I could graduate, work for a little while, save up some money and then go abroad for uh, a much cheaper price 
than a study abroad program. And so that's what I did. I graduated and I got a job. And and the other thing was I really wanted to write for a newspaper. And so and it, I graduated college in 2005. And at the time, newspapers were shrinking. The whole industry was in decline. So getting a newspaper job at all was quite difficult. Wow. Uh, so the fact that I got, got one uh, made me consider myself lucky. But because it was so hard to get a newspaper reporting job, that also meant that they could get away with not paying you much. So uh, I made a starting salary of $21,000 per year. And this is in 2005. Mm. And so basically what I did, I put 15% of my income into retirement funds. I put 15% of that into a 401k and I lived on the rest. And then during the evenings and weekends, I had a side hustle, a second job, and I saved every single dime of that side hustle money. And I put it into a savings account that was earmarked for travel. And I did that for three years. And after, and I saved on average around 800 bucks a month from what? my side hustle. Yeah. Wow. So after three years of, you know, three years is 36 months multiplied by $800 a month. I mean, I saved $25,000 oh. over the course of three years while earning a salary that started at 21000 and then at the end of the three-year time span, it was 31000 So earning a salary between twenty one to 31000 over the course of three years, I saved twenty five grand. You just told all of us how to pay off our credit card debt. <laughs> and so so then when I had that 25 grand saved and I quit my job and went to travel, I had all these friends who were like, oh, I would love to travel, but I can't afford it. And yet these are the same people who like they had manicures and pedicures. They would go to happy hour and they would buy cocktails for like ten dollars, like a little a ten dollar martini or a ten dollar cosmopolitan or whatever. You know, they had like hundred dollar handbags. I mean, they would go to Bath and Body Works and they would buy like body lotion that cost $15. And I was like, you, dude, you can afford to travel. You just can't afford to travel and get like $15 body lotion. Right? <laughs> it's one or the other. Wow. So that was where that philosophy came from. And then I, I started my blog initially to be able to communicate that idea. Which is that every dollar you spend is really a trade-off. Exactly. Every time that you buy a, a tw- I mean, and, and I love fancy drinks at fancy bars like you know I'm not hating on that but but it is a trade-off you can either have that or if you skip enough of those drinks and you can still go out but you know go out and get a diet coke and so you can still socialize and be with your friends and sip a diet coke and (laughs) and you know, you'll save yourself the calories, you'll save yourself the hangover, and you'll save yourself the bar tab. And if you do that enough, eventually that that accumulates into a plane ticket. Okay, I know I'm jumping around here, but I have to ask this. So what it sounds like to me is you're basically saying don't invest in your in your vices, like change your small habits to redirect like where your money goes so that you can focus on the one thing that you want, right? I would, I would say more it's just Be super conscious, be very deliberate, because it might be that you like you might there might be somebody listening to this who sits down after this interview and and thinks very deeply like, all right, I I love going out to happy hour and I don't want to order a Diet Coke. I love getting manicures once every two weeks and I don't want to give that up. So would I rather have that or would I rather have a honeymoon? You know, and if Mm. somebody sits down and they they think very, very deeply about that question. And the conclusion that they draw is, you know what? I would rather have these vices. That's more important to me. Awesome. You have made a conscious, deliberate choice that comes not from a place of I can't, but rather I would prefer. And that I think is what's most important. Wow. But see, that boils down to like, 
I don't know. It was like the mantra I used to tell myself when I wanted, I didn't want to work out. It's like, you will make excuses for the things that aren't really important to you. And you will find a way to do the things that you really want, regardless of time, money, or anything. And if you really want to save for that honeymoon, or you really want to travel, you can have the ability to put everything aside. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Can we talk about this for a second? And I need my audience to listen really closely. I'm gonna throw myself under the bus. I'm 29. And I have never invested in a rental property. <laughs> I don't have one. That, that's, that's hardly throwing yourself under the bus. <laughs> but, and, and I have never bought a rocket ship. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You've said something like that before. We're going to talk about that too. <laughs> but I don't have any rental properties. But you bought your first rental property before you were 30? I was 27 when I bought my first rental. Do you know how rare you are? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so tell me about this like whole buying your first rental property experience and like why your first investment was a rental property. Yeah. So honestly, it came from uh, it came from a place of wanting to get my own housing costs down to zero. So myself and my uh, boyfriend of the, at the time, we were living in we were so we were renting one bedroom within a three bedroom apartment that we were sharing with roommates. So there were a total of five people who were living in this three bedroom apartment, and our share of the rent was two hundred dollars per month per person. So the entire apartment as a whole was like 1200 bucks, but you, we had five people crammed in there. And so based just based on the side, the way things divided out, he and I were paying 200 bucks per person per month to live there. Wow. So we were living super, super cheap. This is in Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, we were living super cheap, but we wanted to get that down to nothing. Like we were, we were like, all right, how can we reduce our costs even further? Uh, and there was a building across the street that was for sale. And this building was a triplex, which is essentially a house that's been subdivided into three units. You can think of it as if if you're not familiar with the triplex. If think of it as a duplex, except with three units instead of two. Right, right. And so that was for. We noticed that that was for sale, and we realized that if we bought it, rented out two of the units, and lived in the other one with our roommates, then we could get our own housing costs down to zero. So did you tell of, your roommates about this scheme? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, they were totally on board because to them it it was a they would be moving into a bigger unit. It was a nicer place. So they'd be paying about the same, but living in a nicer place. And it was right across the street. So same location. Wow. How did you find, so how did, can you explain to me how you found the money, how you guys found the money to invest in this property? Yeah. So we put a down payment of $26,000. And remember, that's between the two of us. Right. So, you know, we had to save on average twelve and a half thousand dollars, twelve thousand five hundred per person. And that we just did by living below our means, right? Like if you think about it, like if somebody were to say, oh, I, I saved twelve grand, I mean that's impressive, but that doesn't sound as impressive as, oh, I bought a rental property. Right. You know what I mean? You are like, like the queen of living below your means. <laughs> I bought a rental property is like a headline, whereas I saved twelve grand is it's still it's still an accomplishment, but it's not something that's going to get a bunch of headline clicks. Right. How how long did it take you to save 12 grand? Uh, we'd been, we'd, we had come back from traveling. We'd been working for maybe about a year. So somewhere, somewhere around that. Wow. This is crazy. Like to, 
the part that gets me and tell me if I'm great if I'm wrong I just when I think about saving 12 grand in a year I think about like I would have to say no to everything is that what it looks like well I mean the the number one thing was that our rent was $200 a month okay yeah that's a big deal so yeah when your rent is that low that frees up a lot and I think the the key to almost the the majority of our success has been that we've always like if you think about the the three biggest things that people spend money on. It's housing, food, and transportation. Mm. So if you can get those three things down, you can make a lot of mistakes in, you can make a lot of $5 or $10 mistakes as long as, you know, you've gotten your rent down to as low as it could possibly go. And there's so many people who are like, but rent in my area is expensive. Yeah, but how many people have you crammed into your apartment? Right. Cram some more people in. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I remember I had friends in D.C. that like at one point had friends living in their kitchen on a mattress and was char- they were charging them like $150 a month. There you go. That's how you can rent in D.C. for $150 a month. Right. right? <laughs> you got to want it bad enough. Yeah. Yeah. Or there are people who are like uh, who work as I have a friend who worked as a tutor and she would tutor this um, this this couple's kid for a couple a few hours a day. And they let her live there for free in exchange for that tutoring. Ooh, you know? I didn't so, even know people could do that still. Yeah, yeah. Bartering. So I like or, it. Yeah, work trades that you can do for rent. Basically, whatever you can do to get your rent down or your cost of housing down to zero or as close to zero as possible. And even in expensive cities, that might mean, yeah, that might mean putting up one of those like room dividers and sleeping on a mattress um, in someone's living room. You know, that that might mean doing some very, very... It might mean living in a van for a little while, Mm, you know, or living in a camper. I have a camper... Recently, uh, I bought a camper on eBay for five thousand dollars, fifty-two hundred to wow. be precise. Wow! You know, <laughs> if I if I needed to, I could live in that. I could right. park it at an RV park and then live in my camper, my five thousand dollar camper. Wow! It's like it's it, you're make the way you make it sound is like it's all in our head. We just like it's small sacrifices for a bigger win. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So speaking of investments and rental properties and you know making money uh, while you sleep, there's been. A few times now that I can look back and say, and now this is what I consider a lump sum of money, maybe not to you, but a few times where I've had a good lump sum of money and I didn't really need anything and I've went around to friends and asked, you know, I would love to invest this money. What can I invest it in? And I never get the same feedback. It's all over the place. Somebody's Mm -hmm. telling me stocks and bonds and someone's saying, oh, you know, get a small apartment and then rent it out through Airbnb or invest in a property or, you know, all kind of stuff for People that are just getting themselves in a situation like that, like a a lump sum of money and they want to invest who aren't around financial savvy families or um, friends that are investing, Mm -hmm. where should they look for the first time or what would your advice be for where to start? All right. So number one, never ask your friends because (laughs) 99% of the time that's going to be the blind leading the blind. Mm -hmm. Where where I would start is books. Almost everything that I have learned has come from books Um, because as I mentioned, my family also, we were immigrants. We are, you know, we're we're new around here. Um, (laughs) So I didn't have that that legacy knowledge. Um, But but what I did have was a library card. Uh, And so a couple of books that I would recommend, one is called The Simple Path to Wealth by J.L. Collins. And I can basically summarize that entire book for you right now. It says, invest in low fee, passively managed index funds. Now, what that means, because I know that sounds like a whole bunch of fancy words and big jargon. Yes. What that means 
is that in so if you buy an individual stock like Nike or Coca-Cola, functionally what you're doing is you are becoming a part owner in a company. So if you buy one share of Nike, you are partially an owner of the Nike Corporation. Congratulations. However, what that means is that your that stock will perform as well or as poorly as that particular company. And so that's where investing in stocks becomes dangerous and risky is unless you really know what you're doing, your ability to choose specific companies is not going to be that great. It's going to be mostly like a monkey throwing darts at a dartboard. Right. But what you can do is you can buy what's called an index fund. And an index fund tracks the overall like entire market. So if you buy what's called a total stock market index fund, then you are investing in the total U.S. stock market, everything that's in it. And that means that you will do as well or as poorly as the overall United States economy. No better and no worse. And statistically speaking, if you look at historic averages, people who buy index funds historically are more are likely to do better than people who buy, say, mutual funds that try to pick and choose specific stocks. So the the lazy uh, approach is actually, statistically speaking, the best um, or the historically most likely to succeed. Uh, and that is just buying a fund, buying a broad market index fund that tracks the overall stock market and not trying to beat the market at all. Wow. So that's, that's essentially what that book says. So the book is called A Simple Path to Wealth. It's written by J.L. Collins. So going to get this book tomorrow, and I will link it in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's so crazy to me. That, like really what you ended with was this is the la- like this is almost like the lazy option because I feel like you said with mutual funds, like everyone – who's anyone would want to tell you like, you need to watch the market and you need to know who's doing well and you need to pick, you know, make the right decisions. But um, you're saying something based on the overall market, which doesn't require those decisions, could be better than any of those options. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'll, I'll give a little plug for my podcast. So on yes. on my podcast, Afford, the Afford Anything podcast, uh, I interviewed J.L. Collins in one of my episodes. So you can, if you don't have time to read the whole book, you can listen to that interview. Um, I also interviewed a guy named Andrew Hallam. He's a school teacher who became a millionaire by by the time he was about 40 or 41. And he did it also just by investing in index funds. He lived below his means. He biked to to work every day. He ate a lot of like cheap food. Mm. And uh, yeah, and, and then he just, he took, again, he was a school teacher and he just took his school teacher salary uh, plus extra money that he made on the side from tutoring and, you know, other side side jobs. And he just plowed it all into index funds. And by the time he was in his early 40s, he'd, he'd become a millionaire. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So I listen to the Afford Anything podcast. And if you guys don't, uh, you're missing out on life. So you have to find Paula Pant, the Afford Anything podcast, because... Each episode is literally life-changing. So I will be checking both of those episodes out. Thank you, Paula. Awesome. <laughs> um, I've read a lot of your great article features. Um, people have done some great features on you. I read an article in Fortune where mm-hmm. totally got my attention because I was like, oh, she's talking about me and some <laughs> of the decisions that I've been trying to make lately. And it was like the best way for me to reason with my decisions 
you talked about real math for working moms as far as their income. Mm-hmm. And it was all about um, if they work outside of home, how much do they really make? And the, this is me because I've gone back and forth with uh, leaving my full-time career where I work for a major nonprofit to work from home. And But in my mind, compare, comparing those, uh, that income has never matched up. But when you put it like this, where you have to look at going to work as operating your business, which is, you know, how much you make minus how much it costs you to go to work. And then what comes after that is what you actually profit. This blew me away. Can you explain Mm. to my audience what some of like, what you would consider annual operating expenses for a, a working mom that doesn't work from home. Yeah, absolutely. Now, first of all, I, I think I think this applies to working moms and working dads both. Yes, so yes. I was, I was trying to get Fortune to publish this as any working parent, but they they insisted on publishing it as working moms because I guess that, that gets better search traffic. Yes, probably because um, we want to work from home already. <laughs> it was just more yeah, reason. But, but this it, it applies to working dads too. You yes. know, when when working dads are making the decision as to whether they want to work or whether they want to stay at home with uh, their child. So for any working parent, if you're trying to make that decision, the uh, one piece of information that you're going to need to collect is what is the actual. So you take what you earn after taxes. And then ask yourself, all right, what is the actual cost of working? So things, so, okay, so for example, if you commute to work, then you pay for the gas, assuming that you drive, or the, the train tickets or the bus tickets or whatever it is, how, what your commuting-related expenses. In addition, we'll, we'll assume that you drive. Not only are you paying for gas, you're also paying for the additional vehicle wear and tear. Mm. And if you have the type of job where you feel like you need to have a decent looking car, something that's not a total beater, then you're paying for the additional expense of having that car. Right. If you have to buy certain types of clothing that you're supposed to wear into the workplace, you know, nice suits or nice dresses or nice shoes, then you have to pay for that uh, work-related clothing. If you have to get that clothing dry cleaned, you have to pay for that. If you frequently buy lunches out or buy coffees while you're out because you're working, then that's another work-related expense. If you, because of the fact that you're working, there are certain things that you would do if you were at home, but that you tend to outsource because you're working, such as uh, you get more convenience meals than you otherwise would, or you have somebody uh, handle your lawn care, which you would do if you weren't, you know, getting paid outside of the house, but but because you're busy, because you're working, you pay somebody else to do that. Like those are all, that's all the overhead of working. So take the amount of money that you make after taxes and then subtract the overhead that you pay in order to work. And then what you're left with is your net profit, your net income after all of that operating overhead is subtracted out. And when you see that number, that's what what you know what you're really making. Listen, after I saw like using the lunch and coffee and just the commute and wear and tear on my car, I was like, "Oh, I'm I'm losing. I'm losing money." Like <laughs> mm, Yeah. But the sacrifice that I'm making is that any money I'm making in my business, I'm using to pay off my uh credit cards and student loan debt. Mm. So I'm going to uh, continue in that in my full-time role for a while as long as I can to manage 
to get get rid of some of that debt. Absolutely. That's a and that's a great thing to do because when you're paying off debt, you're getting a, a guaranteed return, so to speak. Oh, really? Explain well, you, explain that because I know some people that just it. dance around it. <laughs> ah, so if you think about it, the interest rate that you're paying on your debt is a guaranteed loss, right? Yes. Like let's say you've got a seven percent interest rate on something, or or a ten percent interest rate on something, then by virtue of every dollar that you pay towards that debt is a guaranteed 10% return. Right, right. Yeah, and I I had to mindfully buckle down and say, okay, in three years, I'm going to pay off this debt. And any income outside of this income goes towards that. Nice. And it was such a, you know, it was such a, like a buckle down decision. But like I mentioned before, I just thought I was going to have to say no to everything. And it's not really the case. It's just being really focused on what I want my outcome to be. Right, right. Wow. But that that equation of looking at working as a business and the cost of working as your overhead expense, I was like, wow, I don't make nearly as much money as I thought I did (laughs) (laughs) at all. So speaking of making money, Mm -hmm. I have a lot of coaching clients that I work with uh, to start online businesses. And most of them, if not all of them, want to eventually quit their job. Why is it so important to know what that hourly rate is that you make before making these decisions? Because you talked a lot about understanding your overhead and understanding how much you actually make before you make these big conscious decisions. Right. Yeah. So if you want to quit your job, if you want to uh, start working for yourself, number one, know how much you're making at your current job, at your day job, so that you have some sort of a basis of comparison. And number two factor for the fact that when you're working for yourself, you're going to have a lot of non-billable hours. Mm. All of the time that you spend marketing and, you know, bookkeeping and accounting and taxes and, and just answering emails, all of the administration and the marketing that comes with working for yourself, those are all non-billable hours. Mm. So your hourly rate for your billable hours has to be high enough that you can, uh, that, it, that all of those non-billable hours also average out. Ooh. Yeah. So most people will just say, oh, well, I've, you know, the last three ma- months I've made a ton of money. So can I quit my job now? And I'm like, no. But that equation that you use, I'm like, that's perfect because people really need to know what they make versus uh, what they make in their business and how consistent that's going to be. And like you said, your non-billable hours. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so for uh, everybody, because you've been in a, featured in a ton of articles about this, for everyone that is always talking about, I work a full-time job, but I want to make extra money. What are your top three pieces, top three ways, top three pieces of advice on how to make extra money? Ooh. Um, to make extra money, top three pieces of advice for how to make extra money. Number one is get a roommate. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so there's the tactical, like, you know, ways there, there are tactical ways to make extra money, right? So if you, any Google search that you do is like 58 ways to make extra money. Right. (laughs) Number four, drive for Uber or Lyft. Number five, try dog walking. Right. And it's just a boilerplate list of recommendations. Right. And I think that those that kind of stuff is a little bit useless because what you really need is, number one, figure out what. OK, yeah, here are my here's my top three. Uh, here's how the three work together. Number one, figure out what you are good at, what what unique skills or talents you have. Like, for example, are you a good writer? 
Are you a good coach? Are you a good teacher? Are you good at graphic design? Like what, what skill, what training do you have? What skills or talents do you have? Are you very organized? Mm. You know, what is it that you can do? Number two, what is it that the world needs? Like what needs are out there? And then number three, how, where do you find that intersection between the two? If you imagine a Venn diagram of what I'm good at, what the world needs, where do those two circles intersect? Mm. So, so for example, uh, I mentioned I have a podcast, right? Right. My podcast editor, uh, what he's good at is he loves podcasting. He's passionate about podcasting and he loves like he loves the behind the scenes stuff, right? The editing, the putting it together, the uploading it, the, tra- the like all of the the backstage behind the scenes stuff that goes on behind a podcast. He loves it. He's passionate about it. He knows that he's good at it. He knows that the world needs it. But more specifically than that, he also figured out that he can niche down specifically to do editing for finance podcasts. And he could learn that genre really well, that niche really well, you know. So that was his intersection between what he's passionate about, which is podcasting, and what the world needs, which is someone who is knowledgeable specifically about the needs that that apply to finance podcasts. Wow. See, I love that because I think one of the most important parts in that Venn diagram, if you can visualize it with us, is that uh, it's seeing opportunity. (laughs) So (laughs) thank you so much for sharing and taking some time to spend with us. And we, um, oh, and please let my audience know where they can stalk you, find you and hear all your great tips and tricks. So check out the Afford Anything podcast. Just search Afford Anything in your favorite podcast player and hit subscribe so that you can check out my show. As I mentioned, we've got interviews with uh, JL Collins and Andrew Hallam. So those would be both be great episodes to start with. And and then also you can find me online at affordanything.com. Paula, it was an absolute pleasure. I will tag everything in the show notes. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks again for joining us on another episode of The Stranded Podcast. If you felt inspired or moved today, make sure to leave a review on iTunes. You can learn more about us and our guests at thestrandedphase.com. And don't forget that your stranded phase is a rite of passage on your journey to greatness.